Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. The world has been through tough times before. Wars, depression, the threat of Armageddon, and racial hatred are all nothing new. And yet something seems different about this moment. Perhaps it's a generation of culture focused on the self, the me generation, the culture of selfishness, the enduring power of our obsessive focus on self-esteem. Maybe these things have come together to make this moment as corrosive as it feels. So what's the answer? The Beatles said all you need is love. My guest, the most reverend Michael B. Curry, the presiding bishop and primate of the Episcopal Church, also thinks that love is the answer, but in a less sentimental and more transformative way. The Reverend Curry gained worldwide attention to his ideas of love in a sermon at the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle in May of 2018. Now he's taken it a step further in his new book, Love is the Way, Holding on to Hope in Troubling Times. It is my honor to welcome the Most Reverend Michael Curry to the program today. Reverend Curry, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. The world has changed a bit in the past oh, year and a half or so, two years, since your original sermon at at the wedding, the coronavirus, more of divide, more homeless on the streets. In many ways, things have gotten worse. Talk a little bit about how you think about this and the things that you said, the things you've written about in the context of where we are today. Well, you know, the the reality is I started writing this book uh, a year and a half ago, so it was kind of before a confluence of things um, kind of happened. Um, uh, I've been involved in in issues of racial justice and reconciliation for a number of years. And my father was a civil rights activist. So the the racial context of both our our longstanding history um, as well as our contemporary history, um, uh, I've been aware of and been a part of and been active in. So I was aware of that when I started the book. Um, I, I, I had not heard of uh, COVID-19 uh, when I started the book, nor had I anticipated uh, that a pandemic would happen um, and, and that, there, that we'd be in the midst of real sickness, suffering, and death for so many, and, and the resultant economic uh, 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 results that are, are particularly harmful to, to people who are the working poor, um, as well as a lot of folk who uh, have never been poor before. Um, we didn't see that. I didn't see that coming. I just didn't know the virus was coming. Um, and then added on top of that, um, you've got the device, the divisions that are here in American society that are real. And they're divisions that are not just about race, um, but these are divisions about our politics, about ideology, um, about worldviews. Um, I mean, and they, and this is across the country and it's serious and it's real. Um, and so this book um, is an attempt to help us um, find ways to navigate this together and find um, what, what the Bible calls a still more excellent way. Um, you know, if, if you hit me, my first reaction is probably to hit you back um, or depending on how big you are to run. It's, it's sort of the classic fight or flight. Uh, but I want to suggest that there's a third way, and that is the way of love. That, that it is a way that moves beyond just merely fighting um, and running away. It's a way of deeper engagement that has the power to transform both the individuals involved and the context around them. And, and I'll tell you what, if I can give you a quick example. Um, if you had asked years ago what the opposite of love is, I would have said, hey, now there's some truth in that. 
But I want to suggest that the real opposite of love is not hate. The real opposite of love that I'm talking about is self-centeredness. And uh, because the love I'm talking about is the kind of love that Jesus of Nazareth spoke about, that the Hebrew scriptures often speak about. It's the kind of love that is unselfish, even sacrificial, that is committed to seeking the good and the welfare of others as well as the self. That's the opposite of self-centeredness, selfishness, um, or what uh, John Stuart Mill called unenlightened self-interest. This unenlightened self-interest, this self-centeredness is what has the potential to destroy us. And this way of love has the potential to bring us together and help us work together to solve our problems. And of course, part of the problem that we face today and why this is so difficult and why you need to make the case that you do is that you're going up against so deeply ingrained attitudes of selfishness and self-centeredness that have been with us for so long. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's a certain level, um, there's a certain sense in which we have sometimes exalted selfishness as though it's a virtue. Um, well, you know, you, knew, you do need healthy self-esteem. You do need to have some inner drive and desire to better yourself and and to improve yourself and improve your life. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this unbridled um, selfishness that really sees, makes me the center of the universe and you and everybody else is on the periphery. That's what Dr. King called the reverse Copernican revolution. And that reverse Copernican revolution where I'm the center of the universe puts you on the periphery. And that means depending on where you are on the periphery, you are expendable as far as I'm concerned. If it's all about me, there's no room for you. But if we move from just about me to about we, then me is included as well as all the other we's. And that is the way to build a society. That is the way to cultivate relationships and create community. That is the way to save our planet. That is the way to maintain our democracy. Me is not enough. We can do it. It is also historically, and you talk about this in Love is the Way and, and in your sermons, it is, it is the historical way that change has come about. Exactly. Yes. It, it really is. Um, I, I was uh, uh, asked not long ago, and, and, and it happened over and over again. As someone challenged me and said, you know, um, I hear what you're talking about, love, but but is it realistic? I mean, you know, is it realistic in a world like this? And that's a legitimate question. And I remember kind of answering. I said, well, you ever watch Dr. Phil on TV? Uh, Dr. Phil, somebody comes in, they got all sorts of problems, and they're complaining about that. And, and Dr. Phil will ask them, well, how's that working out for you? Um, the truth is the selfish way of living is what's causing the problems we're finding ourselves in right now. Um, this self-centered way of living is what was behind both the kind of white supremacy and doctrines of discovery and manifest destiny that led to the conquest of the indigenous people of this land. It led to the enslavement of Africans. It has led to the subjection of women. It has led to putting down gay LGBTQ people. It has, it has led to um, Japanese Americans being incarcerated during the Second World War. I mean, it has led to virtually every injustice and wrong that you can think of because one group says it's about me, not about we, not about all of us, not about e pluribus unum. It, this selfishness 
It is a cancer. It is a personal and social cancer that destroys. Love builds. Selfishness tears down. Love builds up. Selfishness hurts and harms. Love helps and heals. And it really does. And this book is about people I've met who have actually lived lives of love and made a difference in this world because of it. Talk about how you define love, because it's not necessarily in the traditional way people might think. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. uh, Unfortunately, in English, we only have one word for the word love. We just got the word love. Um, uh, In in the uh, Greek language uh, that the New Testament uh, was written in originally, there there are three words for love that are used. There's there's actually a fourth, but it's not used as much in the New Testament. One is eros, and you know we get the word erotic from that, and that's romantic love. Um, and and you actually see that in Greek translations of the Song of Solomon, which is love poetry in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, another is philia, which is Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, it's fraternal love. And the other is agape. Um, and agape is the one that's used most frequently by G- to translate Jesus of Nazareth and what he was talking about. Agape um, is not um, paternal love or it's not romantic love. Agape is love that is committed to doing the good and the, and the seeking the well-being of others as well as the self. Agape love is what Jesus was talking about when the lawyer asked him about love and asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus told him the parable of the Good Samaritan. A, a parable, a story about someone who helped another person who was of a different uh, ethnic group, a different religious group, uh, who didn't share their politics, who didn't share their worldview, who was actually considered almost their enemy. And, and this person helped that person because they were simply a human being, a child of God. And Jesus said, that's what it is to love your neighbor as yourself, because that's your neighbor. You see what I mean? This kind of love, agape, this kind, this is what Dr. King was talking about over and over again. This is what people like John Lewis were talking about. John Lewis knew about this kind of love. The people who have labored um, to change society and lives for the good have been people who have lived this kind of love, whether they use the word love or not. Even as we, as we speak, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is being being buried, I think, right about now. Um, I mean, she gave her life. She lived so that everyone might be treated as an equal child, not only in the eyes of God, but in the eyes of the law. And, and, and that's, those are the people who've changed life for the good. They're the scientists who are working right now, even as we speak, to find a vaccine and to find uh, medical treatments um, um, for this scourge of, of COVID-19. I mean, they're the people um, who've been working themselves to death in hospitals. Um, I mean, not just the doctors and nurses, but the technicians and the folk in the cafeterias and the folk who have to clean up the medical waste and clean those hospitals. They're the folk who've kept those hospitals going, sometimes many of them sacrificing their own lives. That is the power of of real sacrificial love. Um, It's these firefighters who are up fighting the wildfires now. Um, it's, it's folk who do stuff for others um, as well as themselves. They're the people who have an oval humanity. And, and that's the way for us to become not just collections of self-interest, but to become something close to the beloved community that I believe God has intended from the very beginning. 
It has to be community-wide in order for it to be successful, yes, that there has to be this kind of collective revival that you talk about. Yes, and, and I, thank you for asking that, because I, I, I mean, one of my deep concerns is that we as a country in the U.S., um, and I can't speak for other countries, but in the U.S., um, we have divided ourselves. Uh, we are divided up, and that's not healthy for democracy. Um, segregation is not good when it's racial segregation, and it's not good when it's segregation along people just hanging out with people that they agree with. Um, uh, uh, the, 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 there's a wonderful book by Bill Bishop from a couple of years ago called The Big Sword. Um, where they just did the demographic research and pretty much found that America has pretty much segregated itself almost by zip code, that, that people who, uh, uh, that their blue zip codes and their red zip codes, you know, and some purple and mixed ones, um, and marketing people know this. They know which areas to target with which, what products or what stores or, or that kind of thing. Um, they know that, and politicians know that. They know where to campaign and where not to, not to worry about it. I mean, we have actually resegregated ourselves in our housing patterns, in the patterns of what we listen to on uh, social media, who we communicate with, uh, what we, where we get our news from. Um, I am pretty sure that people who are watching Rachel Maddow on MSNBC uh, don't also watch Sean Hannity on Fox News. I, I could be wrong, but I have a suspicion <laughs> that that's true. <laughs> and, now, what, what the effect of that is that we don't actually know each other as human beings, as, as brothers, sisters, siblings. Um, as I mean, I believe the Bible teaches us that we have all been created in the image of God, um, which means we share something of the life and love of God. We've been given that. Um, none of us have any more of that than the others. We all bear the image of God, which means um, we come from the same source. If you have the same parent, then I believe even biologically that means you are related. Uh, it means we are brothers and sisters and siblings by our very existence, our creation as human beings. And we have got to learn, Dr. King said, we must learn to live together as brothers and sisters or perish together as fools. The choice is ours, chaos or community. He was right. He was right in the mid-1960s. He was saying that up until the moment that he died. He was right then, and it's right now. How important is hope and, and kind of a forward-looking view to really coming to this kind of collective appreciation? Oh, that, yeah, yeah, great question. You know, I think it's critical. I mean, the, the one—you remember in Dante— um, um, it's it's above the it was above the gates of hell if I remember correctly, um, above the gates of hell were the words abandon hope all ye who enter here, that that it is hell on earth or anywhere else when there is no hope. Um, uh, hope is the key that that can like Man of La Mancha you can march through hell for a heavenly cause if you have to if you just got some hope you don't have to have a just some hope. When, when all hope is lost, that's a moment of utter despair. Um, but but with, with, with a hope, um, even if it is a faint hope, um, you, you can keep going. I mean, I talk about you know, my slave ancestors, who I never knew, um, but I talk about them um, as, as folk who, as far as the world was concerned, had no hope. 
I mean, there was no, certainly in the earliest days, there was no hope for the dawn of freedom. Um, I mean, I remember my grandmother telling me what old folk, her, I guess, grandparents would have told her or told her about when slaves in North Carolina heard that they were emancipated during the Civil War. Um, she would tell us, she said, oh, some of them didn't believe it. And a lot of them didn't even know, well, what does that mean? Um, I mean, you see, I mean, they, that these were folk who the hope of freedom was a hope. Then Harriet Tubman knew what that hope was about. Um, and those who were able to escape knew, and those who were able to purchase their emancipation knew, but most did not know. And yet, in spite of all of that, these are the same folk who sang a spiritual, and literally, this is the spiritual of a slave, uh, oh, freedom, oh, freedom, oh, freedom over me. And before I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. Do you hear the paradox of that spiritual? A slave saying, before I'll be a slave. Somebody who's actually got manacles and chains. Um, before I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. That is the language of hope mingled in the midst of despair, and that's enough to keep you going. I want to submit, if folk could do that in that living hell, we can do that now, no matter what befalls us. Talk a little bit about how we do that, because it seems that gradualism has to be a part of this, because turning on a dime, given the depths of, of, of the, the self-focus that you talked about earlier, and the healing that has to happen first, that there has to be a more complex process at work. Yes. Oh, yeah. And, and I think that's, I think you're absolutely right. Um, in, in the book, I offer some suggestions on how folks might do that. But what, what I can tell you is, one, I, I'm beginning to realize that part of this is begins on some level with a decision. That is, I've got to decide that, you know what, I want to live my life as a, in, in the most loving way possible. Um, that, that, uh, that's a commitment. And, and I mean that almost like, you know, the old altar call in revival where you say, yes, I'm ready. You know, yes, I'm ready. I mean, you got to make a decision. Do you, do you want to live that way? Um, there are all these stories in the Bible where Jesus is ready to heal somebody. And he asked the person, do you want to be healed? I mean, cause if you don't want to be healed, okay, well you won't be, and, you know, that, I won't go. But if you want to be healed, that's the beginning of the process. So yes, I want to be a person of love. Then, then, then you need some reinforcement. You need some support for that. And that's where I would argue we need, you need to cultivate a relationship with the source of love and life, which we in the religious tradition call God. That's what we're talking about, the source of love and life. The Bible says God is love. So you got to connect up. I think that's critically important with that source, whatever your religious tradition is, um, to connect up with the source of love and life. And ways of prayer, meditation, um, uh, community worship, whatever, however, however you do it. There are a number of ways, however you do it, but to connect and stay in relationship with that source of love and life. Then uh, you need a community around you to support you because the truth is you're swimming against the current. You're swimming upstream. You are. And so you need support and, and help. And so you got to create a community of, of love and support. Either you find it or you make it up. But you've got to create that somehow. And it's difficult in times of COVID-19. Um, you may have to do it on Zoom, but find a community of support. That's in part what worshiping communities, I think, at root really are, 
uh, recovery uh, um, meetings, uh, NAAA, um, that, those are communities of support to help folks stay clean and sober. Um, you see, and they're communities of accountability and of support. So you need that, that community of love. And then lastly, um, I, I would submit that it's, it's important to um, decide almost daily or decide on some actual practical things that you can do that are actions of love. Now, and again, that's, it may be causes that you support. I mean, I don't know. It, it would vary. It may be actions that you take. It may be something that you're doing, you know, in your office or in your work. Or I mean, it, it will be different, right? but something tangible that you can do. And the habit of, of good works, the habit of grace, the habit of living in love with all of those reinforce, reinforcements actually creates a holistic context for living a life that is guided by love and other, concern for others and less uh, neurotic concern about the self. What have you seen in, in your work with respect to the generational differences in attitudes about this? Huh. Do you find, do, do you find young people more receptive? They are. They, but what I tell you, because the first time I was asked, can this work? It was in the context of young people. And I've had, been with young people in various contexts, both teenagers, young teenagers, and college age, age as young folk, as well as um, young adults um, uh, with whom I work. Um, their question is, we, we, we believe that. We want to believe that. We just have, don't have the life experiences. Can it really work? Part of the reason I did write this book was I was able to tell stories of real people in whose lives I've seen this work. Um, I mean, from the days when I was a kid, uh, my mother uh, died of, had a massive cerebral hemorrhage. I was in middle school, had a massive cerebral hemorrhage. She was in a coma for um, over a year, and, and she eventually died. Um, I mean, my father ended up having to work two jobs. I mean, he was a parish pastor and Episcopal priest. Um, you know, we were kind of normal, middle-class folk in that respect. Um, you know, he worked in civil rights and did all that stuff, but he, I mean, we weren't poor. We were okay. But um, the, the, when the medical bills started piling up and when Blue Cross and Blue Shield stopped, when they had to move her to a nursing home, um, I was come from a family that knows that health care um, and the right to health care is critical. I saw my father have to work two jobs and almost killed him. I saw that. But we made it through because other people stepped in and helped us out. Um, when Daddy had to travel, um, um, and he had to travel for a while when my mother was, we, she got sick in New York. We lived in Buffalo, which was roughly eight hours away. Um, and so she was in the hospital in, in New York for several months. He would travel there um, on usually on Monday. He would come back on Wednesday evening or first thing Thursday morning. Um, and then he would do church uh, Thursday through Sunday. Then he would go back to New York. Uh, when he was back in New York, there was a uh, the Bullocks, Dr. And Mrs. Bullock, uh, who were members of our church and, and family friends. My sister and I stayed with them while he was gone. There was another lady named Erna Clark who used to take us up to school, take us to school and pick us up. Um, uh, my cousin Bill moved from Ohio to, to Buffalo. Uh, to help babysit. He was teaching school, but he helped babysit when that was needed. Um, my grandmother, whose daughter was my mother, I mean, who was sick, uh, in her 70s came and pretty much pitched her tent with us uh, most of the time. I mean, what I saw was a community of people who came around and helped us navigate 
which was a march through hell um, while we watched our mother die and, and in a coma with a yellow feeding tube, the only thing that um, was giving her any nourishment at all. And I tell the story of a woman named Josie Robbins um, who became a friend of our family and um, became like a second mother to both of us. To this day, she's now well into her 80s. Uh, my father's died and gone on to glory. She's well into her 80s. That woman came and became, she became a second mother. She didn't have to do that. I mean, I, I, why did she do that? I mean, I've seen what love looks like, but she was also the same woman who did that for other kids and young people. She was the principal of a school, this is back in the 60s, um, of a school. It was St. Augustine School, and then it became an, had another name later. But that was part of the public school system that made it possible for girls when they got pregnant not to have to stop their schooling. Because in those days, the girl, if the girl got pregnant, she wasn't mainstream. She was just out of school, and her education stopped until she could come back to school. This made it made provision for that girl to continue in school, and the girls were there. Um, they uh, got prenatal care. They got their education. They got postnatal care. They got care for their children. They had the nursery and all that stuff. They got training and parental skills and all that kind of stuff. Josie Robbins, who came and became a second mother to me, is a second mother to a whole lot of girls and grandmother to a whole lot of babies that were born um, in that time. She then, in the 1960s, this is an African-American woman, was an advocate for equal rights for women. Um, I mean, she stood up for women and girls. She was doing this back in the 1960s. When I thought about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I thought about Josie Robbins. Why did Josie Robbins do that? That's love working itself out against the odds, swimming upstream, against the current. I've seen people like that. And with young people, I, I can tell them the story. They know about John Lewis now, thank God. They've seen what it looks like. And if they can see it, uh, Jesse Jackson used to say, you can't be it if you can't see it. If they can see it, they can believe it and find the strength to dare and the courage to dare to live a life like that. I find them remarkably open. Folk of my generation um, kind of know this, but we've been, I'm 67. You know, you live long enough, you get a little bit jaded by reality. And, and you do. Um, and the ideals that you once held and had, they're still there somewhere, but the, the, the world of the real has a way of trying to crush the ideal. Um, and, and yet I, I remind my friends who are my, you know, boomers like me, I said, those ideals are real. Let me tell you something. This country was founded on ideals that it didn't live up to. But if it ever lives up to those ideals, then America will truly be America and not just another collection of individual self-interest. Ideals, realistic, pragmatic implementation, but those ideals can drive you further than you would go if you didn't have Bishop Michael Curry, book is Love is the Way, Holding on to Hope in Troubling Times. I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, thank you. It's been an honor, and God bless you. Thank you.